Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. In hindsight, I should have made us clap on ten for this episode. Well, but... I mean like seven, because let's... <laughs> There's a lot that just happens... There's a lot that just happens off camera. <laughs> like... I mean, in, in, in classic format, these are the Lord's 15 uh, rock-shattering sound effect, 10 commandments. <laughs> oh, oh, listeners, 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 listeners. Long, long have the the followers of Horror Vanguard known that I am on a holy quest uh and that is that is to try and constantly find weird movies that kind of kind of I don't know surprise at least at the very least surprise you John you know just just weird stuff but but for like months and months now I I we've grown so close over over these many years of horror vanguard our journey through the cinematic desert that I've I've uh, I, I I cast down uh, uh, my my rod and it turns into nothing but a humble serpent. I misuse this great power given to me. Uh, and what would what would uh, once again resurface to rattle things? Uh, it's Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. <laughs> All podcasters know there was a prophecy um, that one day, <laughs> one day a liberator would come forth. And free us from the chains of atypical, of typical podcast discourse. And of course, that liberator was the one and only Vincent Price. We, I, I, I'm so excited to be, and to be honest, listeners, like, you know, like, we, we do occasionally some movies here on the horror vanguard that... You might not see shelved next to Freddy versus Jason and ooh, I I don't know Deathbed, <laughs> but this one it's got Vincent Price in it. Um, it's got it's got evil magic curses. It's got murder. It's a horror movie. Sure, didn't have the budget for the Plague of Locusts or Frogs, but you know. Or, or Can't fault the, a movie for its yeah. cost. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. It was already one of the most expensive films ever made at the time. Um, <laughs> and so a lot of stuff just happens off camera. And that's that's okay. Hey, the director works in mysterious ways. Um, it is. It is. It is a classic of the Hollywood Golden Age. It is. Uh, way too long. <laughs> it's it's way too long. But oh yeah. I am I am extremely excited to get uh, Ash to explain to me and to you what the gospel according to Vincent Price is really all about. And speaking of way too long, uh, everyone, I'm excited to announce that this uh, precy you're about to hear now has the record for the longest precy that I've written. <clears throat> no intermissions because suffering is fun. <clears throat> a sermon for all those forgotten. Today, I will be reading you a passage from the Bible. Matthew 25, 34 through 46. A selection of parables known as the Last Judgment. Take your time in locating this passage. You'll find Matthew at the start of the New Testament. 
In this section, Matthew gives us his account of Christ's depiction of the final judgment of humanity. Christ outlines a vision decidedly at odds with the direction taken by the largest Christian institutions in our modern times. The passage reads as follows. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you whom my father has blessed, take your heritage, the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you made me welcome. Naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me, in prison and you came to see me. Then the virtuous will say to him in reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and make you welcome, naked and clothe you, sick or in prison and go to see you? And the king will answer, I tell you solemnly, insofar as you did this to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Next, he will say to those on his left hand, go away from me with your curse upon you, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you never gave me food. I was thirsty and you never gave me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you never made me welcome, naked and you never clothed me, sick and in prison and you never visited me. Then it will be their turn to ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger or naked, sick or in prison, and did not come to your help? Then he will answer, I tell you solemnly, insofar as you neglected to do this to one of the least of these, you neglected to do it to me and they will go away to eternal punishment, and the virtuous to eternal life. Join us in prayer for those lost, the least of the least of these. We, those gathered here today, address this prayer to a nameless desert god, a divinity whose hand and crook are felt, but are personally unknown by the flock, the god of the lost. O nameless divinity who in your own commitment to being disremembered, shelters all those who have been forgotten. We ask you to lift up the dwindling cries of the dispossessed. The least of the least of yours, of ours, who have toiled namelessly under the boss's boot. Those relatives, friends, lovers, who have been erased by the passage of too short a number of years. Those whose names have been stricken and for whom no salvation but one can be found. Those nameless union organizers hung under bridges in the Pacific Northwest. Indigenous peoples whose cultural memory was erased by the hands of colonialism. Each and every soul who died forgotten in some lonely corner of this world. Today and every day hereafter do we pray for their salvation. O oh, unknown Lord, we come closest to seeing your face in the eyes of the forgotten. In them, them who have been lost, we become our closest to you. For those forgotten peoples of this world now stand tall with you. Tall beyond memory, beyond all reach. Like you, O Lord, they now exist only as spirit. A spirit which moves without knowing through us all. In the grandeur of your cosmic time, O Lord, we shall all rejoin your divinity in a haven beyond memory. But, dear Lord, let it be by our hands, by our terms, that memory is set free. Let not some would-be lord's grindstone strip memory 
of child from mother, of friend from friend, of lover from love. Give us all the strength to tell our stories until we wish to tell them no more. Though we may ever wander this desert of the real, let us do so with our names on the lips of those who would take tomorrow's steps. Lord, the first worker who by toil set these things in motion, grant memory to the lost. Recollection is often framed as a burden. I too have many memories that weigh on me like a crushing stone. But even those dread recollections are a gift to be held onto. In remembering my pains, my anxieties, my embarrassments, I come closer to the wholeness that is me. I as something that is both my triumphs, my failures, and how I move through the river of this personal history. The auto-hagiography of grindset culture as a misguided need to redeem every misstep. I am the legacy of my sickness and my health. I recently came into possession of a great uncle's photographs taken during World War II. These photographs show everything from captured Nazi soldiers to downtown Paris on Armistice Day. These unique perspectives of a monumental chapter in global history were captured by a man with hardly a name. No one in my family can recall whether or not he was married, if he had children, or what he did after the war. Even participation in the most discussed moments in history does not promise memory. Capitalism has taken from our hands the choice of which things we shall remember and which things we shall forget. A paper idol in the form of a god leaves us bereft of a god-given choice. How many of our relatives have even less to share with the world after their passing? What will be left of you and I in a few months, years, or decades after our deaths? In the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that all of our actions, righteous and foul, reverberate back to the divine. That each action we take is likewise taken upon the Lord, whether it be intentionally taken upon the highest of the high or the lowest of the low. We see the wealthy everywhere in our society. Their names are hewn into the sides, into the sides of buildings and their faces mark our currency, our hospitals, and our libraries alike. But the poor can hardly be found save for the dirt we are brought low to meet. Matthew's Gospel teaches us that it is in this dirt that we come closest to the divine. For as the worker is ground between the factory gears, so is the face of God. When I look out into the world today, I see the mark of the holy on every picket line, in the eye of every protester fighting for justice, in prisons, in shanties, in sick houses overflowing with the oppressed. I tell you solemnly, insofar as you neglected to do this to the least of these, you neglected to do it to me. We hear these words directed upon the wealthy as well we should, but know that they are also spoken to ourselves. This is no call for individualized giving, but for a thunderous roar from the mountain that we might once again learn how to join as one. Our feet were set upon a path of incompleteness, so that we should learn to walk together when we cannot travel alone. Shall we continue to means-test God? Is a handout too much for the Almighty? Should the Redeemer be made to bag groceries at a Walmart checkout until he is the proverbial dust from which we all came? I charge this upon you. Write our songs, tell our stories, rekindle the flame of our fading memory, for there are none other who can. O Lord of the lost, the forgotten, those who, like you, have come to be without a name. Let these forgotten hands make light the lifting of so many chains. May the spirits of the lost be ever beside us in this struggle, 
just as your spirit weathers the storm of the meekest of your creations. <laughs> a seven. <laughs> oh. First times for everything here on this horror movie review podcast. Well, I suppose then let us let us keep to the tradition of our people and begin, as we always must, with the formalism zone. Zone, uh, zone, zone, zone. The formalism zone. I feel like that should have like a have have like a a, a a choir giving us a chorus in the background. But uh, speaking of stuff that isn't too weird, but we're about to make really weird. Let's talk about Golden Age Hollywood director Cecil B. DeMille. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Are you ready for your close-up, Cecil? It's time to be uh, perceived. It is time to be perceived, known, and critiqued. Uh, where would you like to begin? Uh, so, so I think uh, you had some interesting ideas about Cecil B. DeMille and kind of the aesthetics of American cinema. Yeah, I mean, this is this is mostly DeMille's legacy, right? This is the kind of establishing of a uh, of a kind of recognizable style for. Uh, golden age Hollywood, right? Spectacle, uh, lavish costumes, a very specific kind of cinematography. Um, you know, all of this is uh, like enormously influential. Like, obviously, the big successor, the big successor to the mill in kind of present American cinema uh, seems to be Spielberg, right? I don't think that's necessarily too kind of harsh to say. Although uh, DeMille is much more kind of like it, it's 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 turning cinema into like this kind of mass market product because um, his films are all massively profitable as well. Right. Like that's something else we shouldn't neglect. So wh what do you think of this is like as DeMille is like one of the founding kind of uh, canonical authors or auteurs of Amer of a distinctively American cinema. I think this is really interesting, right? Because, like, in, in so many ways, like, the Golden Age Hollywood cinema is attempting to kind of, like, relight the fire of the Golden Age of Italian cinema. Where, yeah. you know, like, there there was that brief period. Like, I mean, like, you know, when we say Italian cinema now, we think Gialli at best, spaghetti westerns at worst, and there's kind of nothing else. But there was a brief period in time where, like, the center of global cinema was in Italy, and they were doing things with such lavish special effects and excess and opulence that the rest of the world kind of looked to Italy for cinematic guidance. And then, and then golden age Hollywood is like, no, it's going to be us for the rest of eternity. <laughs> and they steal yeah, that yeah. torch. Yeah. But I think and uh, it's, also, it's, it's also like, oh, it's on. also cinema, cinema as ideology, right? Oh, Oh yeah. This, this is like, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, right? Uh, we're both a little bit uncertain about how this episode is going to go. We we do our we do our kind of like uh, I don't know our fun little episodes here on the show that aren't like you know like uh, there are horror movies like Freddy versus Jason where it's like okay duh that's a horror movie, but then there's like we do other stuff here like the creepy gar the creeping garden and Lindsay Lohan films and stuff that's it's horror because we say it is damn it yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
And and so I think we're going to be in some interesting space today. But like, my God, this uh, just on a formal level, this movie's all over the place. I mean, there's there's a lot that's going on here politically. Uh, the mill is uh, extremely anti-communist, um, and Very. this is this is made in the mid 1950s at the kind of high point of America's immediate post-war boom. Um, like. Like I, I can't help but think of this episode as kind of like a spiritual sequel to the, uh, the episode of our sister show, the Pasolini Files, where we talked about the gospel according, <laughs> where we talked about the gospel according to Saint Matthew. Yes, right. Yes. Which is, which is, I think, arguably one of the best films about the Bible ever made. Um, oh, I, so, I totally so agree. Kind of like shockingly different to this, um, and I think the difference is is ideological because both of them are ostensibly drawing from the very same text. And I think to, to formalistically compare the two, right? Like I, I chose, I chose the last judgment specifically for the Precy, partly because it reminded me of Pasolini's film in, in a manner such that Pasolini's film is very humble, right? It is very much the least of the least of these. It's, it's a very, it's beautifully done. It's breathtaking. It's ingeniously shot. It's it's the the composition is so clever, but it, there isn't like the Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments is uh, not biblically nor historically accurate. There's a bunch of just fun stuff in here, and a lot of that fun stuff is also an excuse to create some of the most expensive special effects ever put on film at the time. Yeah. And the just the use of spectacle, who the spectacle is for, what it's meant to convey here across that same kind of biblical context, like in in some really important respects, if the Pasolini's the gospel according to Matthew is is on the proverbial Lord's right hand, then we must find the Ten Commandments then on the left. No, absolutely. And I think you bring up a really important point when you're talking about the politics of spectacle, right? What is spectacle supposed to do? Because quite arguably, spectacle is designed to subsume the viewer, right? All film has mm-hmm. a kind of has a kind of participatory mode of viewership, but this is designed to kind of like overwhelm you. You you become you are you are almost forcibly put into this as as a tiny part of a massive whole, right? It was filmed in widescreen uh, years before the cameras that did that could, were kind of widely used. It had mm-hmm. a cast of thousands in terms of extras. The mill was always very good at kind of choreographing, right? Uh, probably yes. because of his in- interest in arts. But he wasn't, he's not really interested in kind of like uh, the the nuances of performance. A lot of the performance here, it, it kind of falls into very stagey language. But the look oh, yeah. is ev- is everything. Oh, one hundred percent. I am. I have like. I I feel so complicated about this film, right? Like on, on on so many levels. Like I think this honestly might be one of the films I've seen the most. I watch it once a year um, because that's something I did with my mom as a kid, and it just kind of stuck with me. Around about every spring, I, I rewatch Ten Commandments, and like yep. certainly that did nothing to my mind <laughs> over the years. <laughs> um, certainly, art had no impact on me. But <laughs> on a, on a, on a technical level, um, we're we're at something of a crossroads here because like that weird kind of 
stagey acting that we see, it kind of works in an odd way for this text because everyone is kind of like almost archetypal in a way. Everyone is kind of like larger than life and mythic in proportion. And, and, and they're kind of like the, the, the acting is at once kind of bombastic and over the top, but not in a way that is distracting. Like if Nick Cage would have been Moses. Yeah. It's, it which, is not, which, uh, when, when <laughs> <laughs> Nick, uh, call us. Yeah. It's, I, I think of it as quite theatrical. It's quite, it's quite, it's quite stagey. Everything, everything, all of the kind of speech mm-hmm. patterns re- kind of resolve into the same thing. Everything, you know, everything is deliberately kind of overwhelming. And really, the the, the like, I don't want to be hitting the Lenny Riefenstahl buzzer too soon. But when it comes to spectacle, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to spectacle being produced immediately in the in the, in the wake of American hegemony in the, in a co- Cold War environment. Spectacles should make us initially a little suspicious. I, I I think that is a really important point of contrast here. You know, like uh, Lini Riefenstahl's films are are spectacle, but they're like the the spectacle there is in service of one of the worst ideologies ever created by our species. You know, like like you're you're absolutely right. Spectacle is never it's never neutral entertainment. There's no such thing as an empty spectacle that's just for for your personal enjoyment. Spectacle is always in service of something, and typically it's it's the kind of sugar coating on a poison pill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and like, I think DeMille is de- deliberately doing this right in this film. I mean, he's he's oh, a yeah, propagandist. Yeah. He's a propagandist. He's a very let's good pick propagandist. Apart- yeah, let's pick apart a little bit about because I think maybe our, our our audience might not know a little bit about Demille as a person, and maybe just knows him as a director. But I think it's really edifying to learn about. Oh, I don't know, a couple, two, three things that Demille really cared about through the course of his life. Uh, he really cared. He really cared about religion. He really cared about conservative American politics, and he really did not like those gosh darn pinko commies. He also hated unions. Was another thing that Demille was super strongly opposed to. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a union buster. Made it. Uh, I think what, what it's about sixty, seventy films, a mix of talkies and and silent films. Um, yep. Quite a lot of like religious adaptations. Uh, the mm-hmm. other, the other uh, really famous one is uh, Samson and Delilah. This is technically a remake of uh of a silent film that he made called the ten commandments which he did 30 years uh, what is it 30 years earlier i think mm-hmm. um and he he got a huge budget phenomenally expensive film for the time but the reason that he kept getting these huge budgets is because his films made so much money his films made so much money um i think i you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think this uh was maybe second to gone with the wind as the most profitable film ever for a very long time Ooh, that is money ooh, ooh, in the bank. Uh, up there, making like hundred, making like in in contemporary parlance, making like Avengers level of money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a whole essay right right there for someone to write. But like his like hated unions uh, is working with actors in this uh, the one of the one of the most important actors in the entire film and the composer. Uh, were both uh, questioned by HUAC, by the House on American Activities Commission, um, 
one of them was on the gray list. It was on the studio, not not quite a blacklist, mm-hmm. but it was on the gray list of someone who had been uh, dangerously cl- cl- close to the communist or socialist movement. Uh, and DeMille basically resuscitated the guy's career by putting him in this. Uh, the, the legend, Edward G. Robinson, uh, who plays Dathan. Yeah. Um, but like, ideologically, the moral of this film is American exceptionalism and the valorization of a particularly American kind of freedom, right? Uh, the the Israelites are, you know, are led by the most American-looking Egyptian <laughs> in Moses. This is this is, uh, you know, Moses Texas Ranger. <laughs> uh, so it's like. There is very clearly a kind of ideological angle going on, and his own, uh, his own kind of um, skepticism or antipathy towards things like unions and uh, the USSR and socialism absolutely feeds into all of that. Um, and, and I guess this brings up a question that I have been going over in my mind, which is which is this: Is Cecil B. DeMille a bad director? So I think that this is a really interesting question to start to explore. And I think like, I'm going to take this along two different paths because one answer is yes. And one answer is no. Um, he's, he's a bad director on a, on a much larger societal level being this conservative propagandist. Right. Um, but then like, in terms of like 10 commandments kind of works as a movie, but it works. I, I think Cecil B. DeMille has a very narrow band of what would be good. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is this is this is the thing. It's like a lot a lot of this film, I I admire on a technical level and on the level of kind of choreography, but uh, a lot of it I think I kind of I honestly I was struggling with this, uh, and so I, I kind of was doing some reading about Cecil B. DeMille and you know uh, John Huston, the legendary legendary director of Hollywood, famously hated. Cecil B. DeMille thought he was mm-hmm. like, just it's just empty, vapid showmanship. Uh, there was no kind of artistic truth to them, uh, and there's big, big sways, swathes of that that I kind of agree with. Um, and then I found this amazing quote from Salvador Dali, who said that Cecil B. DeMille, the Marx Brothers, and Walt Disney were the American surrealists, and it, it kind of helped me get this movie. Um, and the other thing that really helped me get it is that um, DeMille really liked the the art of Gustave Doré, and a lot. If you think of if you think of uh, the film as a kind of series of images of kind of like archetypal gestures, it works a lot better. Um, basically, this is a film mm-hmm. that is made for like a four and a half hour runtime on a Sunday afternoon, and you just kind of leave it on in the background. <laughs> while oh yeah, you, while yep. you do other stuff. And the film will really yeah, that, work yep. that way. <laughs> I I want to. That is how you should be watching this movie. This is not a, a a sit down and glue your eyes to it kind of movie. This is just a let it wash over you kind of film. Just swim in the sea of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I I think he is he's a great choreographer. His his attention to detail is uh, legendary. Legendary. Uh, but I don't. I don't. I don't know. Like, like I say, I. One of my big interests is religion on film. Um, you know, it's. Uh, you know, I did. I did. I did my PhD on religion and horror movie and, yep. and horror. So it's like. 
I, I just couldn't help but think watching this. I was like, I would rather be watching Pasolini. I'd rather be watching. Uh, uh, oh yeah. Uh, Karl Dreyer or or Bergson, like or other directors who are like deeply interested in religion. Like I would rather be watching like Scorsese's Silence if I was trying to get mm-hmm. at something that was made by a great director. It's it's a really cool and impressive series of visuals, but like. I don't know if you give it too much attention, it does sort of feel a little bit hollow. Well, and I, I think you're completely right. And like, with, like we're watching, going back to Pasolini again, our episode on the gospel, according to Matthew, like you feel a certain sense of religious wonder or awe when you're, when you're watching that film there, there, there's an attempt at expressing a divinity in that. And that pops up in this movie, especially in in the kind of like, grandeur of the scale of it all just the amount of extras in this movie the the use of special effects i think in those moments it it starts to get a little successful in that direction but the vast majority of this movie kind of reads like a superhero film it doesn't it doesn't quite have the same it's 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 using religious characters and religious pieces but it's like so very close to being like a Western or something, you know, like Moses rides into town and he's going to set old Sheriff Ramsey's straight about the law. <laughs> like yeah. Mo- Moses just pulls out a six shooter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Lord gave me this six shooter Ramsey's, <laughs> but no, I think, and I think that that's something where the movie it's, it's literally struggling under its own opulence. Like, like that is the thing that's kind of grinding against this film, you know, like it doesn't know, like much like Moses himself, this movie doesn't know what to do with all the power it's been given. You know, it, it, it has the power to solve all of its own problems, but it doesn't know how to achieve that. Yes, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I think this is like, uh, is there's a, there's a great, there's a great line, right? The, the opening of the film really kind of drives this home, which is like, uh, it, it done in voiceover, and you get the famous, the famous Cecil B. DeMille introducing his own. He was ever the showman, right? Ever the, the- theatrical performer, and he says, "Let there be light." And what you see is not light; you see the film lights, and it's like the director is God here, right? If if this mm-hmm. is a film, if this is and, a and film, that- of, if this is a film of religion, the God is Cecil B. De- B. DeMille. And that that speaks to, I think, the underlying kind of conceptual failure of what's going on here, right? Like Cecil B. DeMille cast himself as the narrator, right? Like he he like he let Moses do the voice of God as the burning bush, but but Cecil B. DeMille is the kind of greater God of this film. Yes, you know he's 100%. placing himself above God in the creation of this. Cecil B. DeMille could have given a, a massive fortune to some like a actor who is a member of an oppressed group like Cecil B. DeMille could have done good with his position in this movie but he chose self-aggrandizing instead well like there's a all right there's a there's a theological point here that I want to make right so hit it uh there's another way the film could have started right there's a kind of there's a if you if you go back to scripture if you go back to the bible um you know, uh, let there be light is the opening of the opening of Genesis, the, uh, the words of God. But the beginning of the Gospel of John says, "In the beginning was the Word, 
right? That's how this could mm-hmm. have started. It, it could have started with the word, but it starts with the director. It mm-hmm. start right. It could have started with the, the performance itself. It could have started with some kind of artistic truth, because that's the real struggle of trying to put any religious experience on screen. Because it's about the problem of representation, right? How do you represent what is fundamentally unrepresentable? Like, like that's the whole struggle yes. of religious art, right? Is to try and present something which, by its very nature, is almost unre- unrepresentable mimetically. But you could have started with the word, right? You could have started with uh, a kind of pursuit towards an artistic truth. And I actually think you would have gotten a better film. But you would have gotten a film that didn't care so much about letting you know about the director of the film. Oh, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. A more like <clears throat> theologically engaged film. And I think this speaks a lot to, to something we'll get into the discourse when we start talking about Catholic workers and liberation theology and kind of these left versus conservative appraisals of Christianity. But like, I, I can't help but while watching this movie, think about uh prosperity gospel preachers and mega churches and kind of you can sit in a mega church in the united states and watch drummers fly around you on on uh like what by wire and there'll be like 20 foot tall mega screens and bands and all kinds of nonsense and like then you you like you open the book that inspired all of this and it's like you should feed the poor people (laughs) yeah yeah, this is like this is like prosperity gospel. Like this is what I mean when I say the film is a kind of exercise in a particular kind of American ideology, right? Which is which is the political theology of America. What is so political th- theology is basically the the realm of theology that discusses the relationship between the state and whatever kind of divine yeah. mandate that undergirds it. And this is explicitly addressed in the text of the film, right? Which is like fr- this this idea of freedom, and it's like. F- and it's all it's so it's so kind of like classically american this is like this is this is a religious movie for mega church audiences that's what this is like okay so here here is literally cecil b demille's uh opening line for the film the theme of this picture is whether man ought to be ruled by god's law or whether they ought to be ruled by the whims of a dictator like ramses are men the property <laughs> of the state or are they free souls under god the same battle continues throughout the world today. Our intention was not to create a <laughs> story, scab, but to be worthy scab, of divine-inspired story. <laughs> and and like so, so this is something that I mean, like like I was going to save that for the discourse zone, but I think this is a good time to bring that quote up because, yeah. like, while reading that quote, what's the first thing that I think of? Like, oh yeah, men shouldn't be ruled by these would-be gods and dictators. Your boss shouldn't be telling you you can't go on a short trip to see an ailing relative. But I, I guarantee you Cecil B. DeMille was writing that and he was saying, oh, FDR's gone, went too far with those damn taxes. We shouldn't put schools in rural communities. Yeah. Like, what a tyrant. Like, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's it's so jarringly red scary, that, that opening. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's I think one of the the great failures of this film is it's so wafer thin with a lot of the posturing like it well posturing is the right word it's not wafer thin it's literally just an act of posturing. But it it looks it looks very good doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell me tell me I know you had something to say about the special effects and the makeup in particular. Well, I I 
it's a it's a kind of throwaway point when it comes to the makeup but like can we i think we should take a minute to acknowledge that some of the special effect, effects for the 1950s are genuinely jaw-droppingly clever oh absolutely uh, and just the scale the, the, and the scope and this movie like reads so well today too it holds up effects wise yeah the the parting of the red sea you know not for nothing has spielberg said that he regards it as like the best special effect ever done Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I do I love mean, totally. I do love the makeup, which is basically let's let's put let's put Charlton Heston in like a white white glue on beard to make him look yeah, to make I him look he, wise. He had seven mall Santa beards that he went through through the production <laughs> of this film. Uh, and I think that, I mean like this the the makeup I think leads me because this this movie is also guilty of the sin of spray tan and bronzer. Oh yeah, um, a, a lot, a lot of very, a lot of very tanned men getting sweaty and filthy in this movie. If you, if you, if you like Conan the Barbarian, might I suggest to you the Ten Commandments, the story <laughs> of Moses? Um, but I think this kind of like th- this hooks into another point, and that's kind of like the politics of race and casting. Yes, um, because. All, all of these Egyptians uh, are white people in this movie. Uh, we, we got a lot of, we got a lot of that going on here. We've got some blackface going on, um, or not blackface. Hang on, I'm gonna retake that. We've got uh, white actors cast as Middle Eastern and black characters. Um, Moses's first wife, Zephora, notably, um, was an Ethiopian in the text, and like here she is as like a pasty white woman. Um, like there's a lot of, yeah, what's going on here, uh, uh, with the casting and like one of the most cutting criticisms of this movie that I read while, while getting ready for this episode, uh, what was that like, uh, black actors were clearly, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but black actors were clearly, uh, available to be cast as servants and slaves, but not available to be cast as like the actual, like yeah. roles that they would have taken. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and can we talk about how uh, maybe the 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 better version of this film is the animated film, The Prince of Egypt, the animated musical <laughs> film, The Prince of Egypt, for actually ooh, having ooh, having I like that Egyptian and African characters that are uh, 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 actually th- that look uh, like they're from that country, even if even then, even then. It was still all American actors who were voicing the characters. And and one could attempt to make the argument that this was a movie of its time and and that this was before the civil rights movement really fired up and whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, but that is total bunk because did I not just read an empowered opening speech from the director about how all men deserve to be free under God and not under the tyrannical rule of the state? And then, and then the god of the film just cast a bunch of white people, and and would totally abnegated the responsibility of his own words. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is like something that something that we could get into into the uh, into the into the kind of like discourse zone. But this this runs into the problem of like the religious justification of freedom, uh, because suddenly your problem the problem of American uh, American the- political theology is that. How did you get around it? Well, you just decided that anyone who isn't white isn't really a human being. Yeah. 
right? And this is, I mean, this is what this is what happened. Like the 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 classic example here is like the Haitian Revolution, where the Haitian Revolution actually fulfilled and took ser- took seriously and took inspiration from the French Revolution of liberty and equality and fraternity of all people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. that that was that was only fulfilled and that was only enacted in the Haitian revolutionary struggle against uh, against the most kind of brutal forms of dehumanization and chattel slavery. Right, colonialism is is entirely bound up within the Enlightenment, as Aimé Cesar points out in the discourse on colonialism. Right, so the the point is like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a man made in the image of God. It's like yes. Well, the question then becomes, uh, well, who are you going to count as a human? And the answer in America was yes for for the very longest time. Oh, not all of these groups of people. And it's it's this is again kind of like pulling at the threads of the failures of this film, you know. And it it's you it's it lays its own ideology bare. As it makes all of these grandstands about freedom and liberty and, and like like literally the entire plot of this movie is about slaves being freed. And and here it is doing all of this whitewashing and it's casting. Yeah. Like like could you not see what you were doing here? Ugh. Frustrating. But good for discourse. Good for discourse. Speaking of someone who's always good for discourse, Vincent Price. <laughs> let us let's talk about the the man let's talk about baka the 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 master builder let us talk about vincent Ugh. price vincent price who just gets straight up murdered <laughs> i mean like i i just want i just want someone to refer to me as a master butcher i i just think that i love i love the kind of like fight between baka and moses and everyone else like Vincent Vincent Price has said in a bunch of in, in, interviews that he loved taking the roles of villains because no one took being a villain seriously, and and he and it was his goal to kind of like bring a, a kind of like dark humanity to his his role as a villain. And I think Baca is such a good example of this because he's like this perverted, decadent, just just sickeningly evil man. But when he dies, you see the fear. Right, like Vincent Price really sells the kind of like frail humanity inside of us all. Like, oh God, Vincent Price, what a legend! Good, good actor. Well, who thought? Okay, who would have thought? Let's let's try and kind of dig into this a little bit because, all right, what does it mean to think about this as a Vincent Price movie? What does this mean for Horror Vanguard to be doing an episode on a Vincent Price movie? that just so happens to be Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. So we've been at this show for, what, four or five years now? Um, and by and by, we will cover all Vincent Price films, as, as is the holy, holy uh, mandate of all horror cinema review podcasts. <laughs> uh, and we're, we're, we're taking the bold course, right? We are, we are currently engaged in theological struggle by, by putting The Ten Commandments at the top of the pile. <laughs> But I do think I do think that creates an interesting question of what happens when we focalize horrific elements, right? Like what happens when we focalize the terror, the pain, the things that we commonly associate with horror, and we stop seeing this as kind of a pseudo Western proto superhero monumental act of spectacle, and we start seeing it as like kind of an exploration of darkness. 
especially in terms of its political context, contemporary to the moment and everything that would go on to happen over the next 20 years of American history. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question, right? What is it like? What does it mean? Oh, I have a take. The... Go, go on, go on. Oh, no, 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 no. Go, go on, go on. I, I'll, I'll, I got it. I got it. But we're good. I guess, we're good. Sorry, I just I cooked up something of, brilliant. <laughs> the question the question to kind of like try and think about is like, what does it mean to put the blood back into religion? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like uh, I, I'm thinking here of like Kierkegaard's fear and trembling. This idea of like uh, religious experience is there's something kind of like horrifyingly epistemologically violent about this sort of like pseudo atheistic idea that like oh we don't believe in religion but it makes you be a kind of better person right that's like that's that's what it's that that's there's something kind of disgusting about that right I would much yeah. rather you know even uh, it's it's far better to take the kind of for all of my criticisms of Nietzsche, like it's much better to take the Nietzschean angle of going, like of taking the responsibility yep. of going, no, therefore let us deal with the terrifying abyss of freedom that's opened up before us and actually strive mm-hmm. to become, to become that which we can be, right? A kind of horrifying transcendence. Um, so it's like, wh- what do you think? What does it mean to think about religion as being something essentially horrific? So, so okay. Le- leading in, leading into the take, the take that I cooked up, um, I, I think that's necessary and and true because the, the the kind of Nietzschean angle, right? Like, is is deeply terrifying. If we are totally free or free enough to make these decisions, then we have an unlimited burden of responsibility. Or if something divine has given us an unlimited burden of responsibility, we still kind of wind up in the same ontological position. Or at least a relatively similar one. And it, it winds up being this kind of... There's nothing scarier than freedom. Right? Like, like you know, like this is kind of one of the classical conundrums of left political thinking. But, like, why do, why do people fight for their own enslavement? And a non-zero sum of the answer to that is that it is really scary to try to be free. And to and to return your agency to yourself, like that that kind of the daunting work of prefiguration is unraveling here, and and we kind of see this in the depictions of this movie, right? We we have the honest and vulgar and evil and bloody and dying Vincent Price as Baca, and in our notes here we can we have him contrasted with another man in this film, another legend of the American silver screen, Charlton Heston. Yeah. And they kind of form these these two polarities within this film. If Vincent Price is kind of the serious the seriousness and the gravity of this question, what does it mean to fight for the freedom of all in such a way that like that even know, the like villains there, there is... have humanity when they die, right? Even the villains yes, get yes. get to be, get to be even the monster gets to be gets to be made human, right? Gets to gets to share in some kind of common essence that sort of unites all living things absolutely and we see vincent price on the other end or not vincent price charlton heston is on the other end of this as moses in this movie the great man of history the single figure who by his action alone can fight for the liberation or downfall of of a group of people it's not popular will it's not uprising it's not organization it's not this real complicated thing full of human emotion and agency and need 
it's just one guy finally gets up and does it right it's it's these these two ideologically empowered poles that that are just ripping at each other yeah i mean if so so what is it uh moses says you know it would it, it wouldn't take a man it would take a god to go against pharaoh and it does the, that god mm-hmm. just happens to be charlton heston Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's it's about this idea of like you can become so much greater just through a kind of sheer force of individual will whereas like Vincent Price's death is about like even the most evil have something within them that can make you sympathize with them. Um, I suppose so. I su- <laughs> <laughs> oh, podcasting. Who's going to um, lead us in? <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, ap- apropos of literally nothing, how do you feel about transcendental representations of religion in cinema? Uh, I have many complex feelings about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, yeah, th- this is this is kind of like, I-, I mentioned this before, the kind of problem of representation. And really, the, the tradition of religious thinking that I find most kind of fruitful for film is um, what's called apophatic theology. And apophatic theology is... is uh, what's usually called the ne- the negative way what can you you can only say what god is not you can only say what the divine is not um and is is presented in a, as a as a kind of absence right if you think about it in in cinematography the divine is the empty frame right it's it is not all of these things but because of its mm-hmm. nature you can't really have any positive statements made about it um, and this is a tradition in, in quite a lot of the major uh, major religious yeah. uh, traditions. Um, but uh, honestly, uh, I think everybody needs to read Paul Schrader's book uh, on transcendental style in cinema. Uh, the, yes, Paul Schrader of Taxi Driver fame uh, wrote a book on <laughs> uh, uh, Brisson, Ozu, and uh, Dreyer uh, called Ooh. Transcendental Style. Um, and it's about the problem of presenting religion on on screen. And he coined this term trans- transcendental style. Um, you know, I would really love. I I would love for us to do an episode on First Reformed, uh, which is maybe one of my favorite films of like the last five years or so. I think it's incredible um, as this example of what transcendental style is, and it's a it's religious experience as something that's very slow, very quiet, very. Uh, mm-hmm very subjectively personal at an almost like unbearable yeah. level level of closeness and like all of yes. this all mm-hmm. of this that you see in in uh the ten commandments is really distant it's it's spectacle that actually personally i know this was maybe effective for some people but personally it feels you ca- I, I kind of bounce off it when i try and take it too seriously if i try and engage oh, with yeah, it yeah. as a kind of like mm-hmm. meditation on religion it loses me. But what do you what do you think about this? What do you think about the kind of do you, do you have a favorite film about like faith and religion? Uh, it's Pat Pasolini's The Gospel According to Saint Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, to mention Pasolini again, uh, The Gospel. This, this is uh, honestly, it's a wonderful film. Um, and I, I've had weirdly enough, like I'll be watching odd like um damon damon packard's uh oh my god what was the title the late 70s horror trailer uh the the first time i watched that it was like a near religious experience for like 11 straight minutes yeah because because the movie is so 
strange and aggressively surreal that it forces this kind of like meditative interpersonal connection, whether you want it or not. Um, and I think that someday a real transcendental style will come and wash all of this spectacle of the Ten Commandments off the streets. Um, little little taxi driver, little, little taxi driver for the audience today. Hey, um, hey, but but I think I think you're you're completely right about this. Like the points in this movie where I personally connect the most are the kind of are a lot of the B and C plots. Yeah, you know, like I. I really feel for Joseph in this movie. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, th- there is someone who's actually spending every single ounce of his life's energy to fight for the liberation of his peoples, and he's willing to forgive all of them for however they've participated in this machine, as long as they'll cast it off when the time comes. Yeah. Like, like the, the dude is like through and through about it. It is like. It it is nearing it's it doesn't achieve it but it is kind of nearing that transcendental crest and like but like you know you'll get you'll get some scenes with him and then like uh, immediately you'll get charlton heston in a santa wig like yeah like going like (laughs) oh i will make it rain fire (laughs) yeah uh it's kind of kind of under it undercuts its own seriousness left and right. It's like it's like the thing where someone's trying to give a serious speech, but they keep nervously laughing and, and undercutting their own tone, not calling myself out there at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's th- like the moments, the moments of like Moses wandering in the desert, you know, I think hugely effective. But this is this is religion as a kind of like aesthetic bludgeon or like uh Religion is a kind of myth, right? It isn't. It isn't a kind of personal, lived, or or embodied experience. Um, yeah, but- it's it's a it's a super didactic approach to a very narrow band of Christian ideology that that's getting reflected back to us with the Ten Commandments. It's not a kind of like genuine theological art piece. Because to do so, to do so would necessarily mean involving yourself in kind of cinema, which is far too close to being, you know, communist. And I think like this is why Tarkovsky is one of, one of the one of the masters of kind of religious cinema. Andrei Rublev, uh, even uh, arguably yep. arguably Stalker is a, is a religious film. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent, deeply so. Uh, and so, okay, and also, can we just say this movie is way too long. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, what do we think about what, this what, what, do you, what, we, what do you mean it's just over three hours it, yeah but isn't it like th- three hours 40 three hours 40 minutes i mean that's 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 hard, hardly even a fifth of a day <laughs> uh has an intermission as well I, what, have you forgotten you- to whom you speak <laughs> i you you have you have seen things you have gone on pilgrimage <laughs> That is true. Oh, you have, yeah, you have, yeah. You have gone through the sands of time and come back changed. But even you must admit that this movie is too long. <laughs> so I think I think that if you try to sit down and watch this movie through and through, it will be too long. It, 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 will, it, is, it, is a, it is a difficult movie to sit and just watch like you would sit and watch a tight 90. Um, but I think that, as we talked about earlier, like, this movie has something in common with logistics and that like no human soul was meant to watch logistics every frame beginning to end. You're meant to kind of just like soak in logistics and, and some kind of like uh, art setting 
you know, you're meant to go to an exhibition where monitors are playing logistics and you can kind of just just get a taste of the nightmare. And it's kind of the same with this film, you know, like it's it's a bit sprawling. And I think one of the things that I find to be really interesting is that this has something that we've entirely lost. Literally, the last film I can think of that had an active intermission was a Rob Zombie movie. Um, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. OK, it's. It, it wasn't it wasn't really Rob Zombie was part of it, but I counted as a Rob Zombie movie, uh, the Grindhouse double feature. But I digress. Um, and I think the politics of intermission are really interesting because now we've got all of these Avengers movies that are just as long as the Ten Commandments. And and the, if, if the Ten Commandments is is troubled by its hollow spectacle and its kind of devotion to excess over its devotion to this kind of theological text it's drawing itself from then like the avengers movie are, are, are like what it's like being being beaten to death with a candy bar or something like like there's like nothing in there but spectacle you know like there's there's the it's it's just spectacle and propaganda and like the core the core is completely missing and i think the uh the lack of an intermission speaks to this because what is an intermission an intermission is a formal invention because your movie's really damn long and at some point, your audience is going to need to go to the bathroom. They're going to want to stretch their legs. They're going to want to lean over to their friend and be like, oh, man, like Moses be looking good. Right. Like <laughs> you're going to you're going to need a moment to go out and get a smoke, you know, refill your soda. Like you have human needs to tend to during the watching of a marathon piece of cinema. And like we, we've just cut them out. We've cut them out of movies because these these massive movies are no longer for humans. They're for investors. They're for capital. They're abstracted in for money. As as problematic as the Ten Commandments is, at least it was made for people to watch it. You know, like it's got it's literally has a point in the movie built in so you can pause and go take a break. <laughs> and on that note, please join us after this brief intermission. Do 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 do. Let's all go to the lobby. intermission jingle goes here but uh dear listeners for us there is no intermission uh your podcasters are just going to keep on keep on casting some pod Uh, Woo! Uh, and uh, if you, oh if you, that is an uh, do, hour. That is an hour and three minutes on the tape. That is the yeah. So we're at an hour, and this is the formalism zone. Oh, uh, okay. Woo! Are, are you are you good to uh, bang out what I'm assuming will be a much quicker discourse zone? <laughs> I finished my whiskey. Let us let us bang this out. All right. All right. Well, welcome back from that intermission, everyone. I uh, hope you got some hot dogs, uh, some popcorn, some snacks, a couple soda pops. Uh, you know, like ignore the teens making out in the back of the theater. That's that is just the way of things. Uh, as we're going to move on into the discourse section of today's episode, but before you do that, I, I know that you, you listeners, you're you're just like us. You're just like Ash and John, the the co-ghosts of this show, who are now speaking in third person. And as as people just like us, you're also wandering the desert of cinematic takes. You're just seeing all of the nightmarish nonsense popping up on lesser film criticism sources, Twitter.com. You want a journey to the mountaintop. 
And to journey to the mountaintop of film takes, you have to go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard, www.horrorvanguard.com, where for less, for less than the amount of money it would take to climb Mount Sinai, you can support our show and something, 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 benefit for you, access to our Discord, early access to episodes, couple couple things along the way that are fun and neat, and just genuinely, we really appreciate it, you know? It really means a lot to to see new people showing up on the Discord and new voices and getting to chat and all that good stuff. So uh, there's me there's me dovetailing an awkward Patreon plug into something genuine before we talk more about this long ass movie. Uh, yeah, that was that was a lovely a lovely sincere moment. That was a lovely sincere moment. You know we've been. We've been doing so good with those Patreon plugs lately, and I just I just go and do that. <laughs> I, I spent all of my all of my uh, uh, transcendental divine reserves on the Precy, so nothing nothing in the tank for the Patreon plug. But but it is true if like if you spend any time online, you've got to recognize that the vast majority of popular film discourse just sucks. Uh, it's just terrible. Sucks and- on toast. And you know, in our own small way, we are trying. We are trying to do something. Uh, this these these podcasts are not us giving hot takes, but are generally the two of us trying to work out in real time how to think through the challenge of a piece of art. And it is something that it is an an enormous privilege to get to share with everybody who listens. Um, and if you like what we do, and if that's that's what you think about art as well, if that's if that's what you want to see more of patreon.com slash horrorvanguard horrorvanguard.com is there for you now let us talk about let's talk about let's talk about the two important things in life communism and friendship (laughs) (laughs) so okay here's something here's something interesting right i I kind of i kind of have a, a question about this film to spark some discourse you know in in my sermon in today's sermon that i delivered to the congregation of horror vanguard um I I framed God as the first worker, right? The beginning of a process of labor, right? What what happens when we look at this film through the lens of labor, through 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 kind of like left labor criticism? And I think it it takes us to an interesting interesting hip group of cats, uh, the Catholic workers. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the 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 Exodus out of Egypt is a uh, story about the self organization, liberation, and coming to consciousness of labor, um, mm-hmm. of in, specifically of enslaved and exploited labor. Um, yes, as as a great evil, <clears throat> and there's a distinction here. There are a couple of things that are useful to point out, right? Which is the distinction between uh, exploited, uh, fundamentally alienated, enslaved drudgery uh of what the film calls drudgery without end and actually human the human potential of and self-creation and uh, of of bringing something new into the world right which is a kind of work right a creative act um and those are two different things uh and the the catholic workers movement and generally catholic social theology is enormously opposed to the first and is very much in favor of the second um and would you like to would you like to 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 go off about uh the patron saint of Hor- one of the patron saints of horror vanguard uh dorothy day 
ab- absolutely. Uh, Dor- Dorothy Day, f- phenomenal career as a journalist, an activist, uh, outspoken anarchist, uh, Catholic convert, joining joining the weird tradition of of left weirdos who convert to Catholicism at some point in their life. But like Dor- Dorothy Day was one of the loudest figures of the Catholic workers, right? This branch of Catholicism focused on and dedicated to the emancipation of the working peoples of this world, right? Like, like part and parcel to liberation theology more broadly on like a global scale. And like, like the, you know, like the Catholic workers are still active. Like, like we often talk about them as a historic movement, but they're still kicking around. They're still doing stuff. There's branches all over the United States. Um, and on top of that, there's also a movement to canonize Dorothy day so that she can become St. Dorothy day. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, justice, autonomy, uh, solidarity with the poor, the preferential option for the poor, uh, and and genuine freedom. Right. That's that's the kind of some of the core tenets of a liberationist theology. And right, this is okay. We're, a mild hot take, if you will, but this is maybe one of the problems yes. about uh, about a kind of like stereotypical leftist arid materialism that refuses to acknowledge the uh, non-material as having any kind of like valence in contemporary discourse uh this idea that actually right what you need is you need hot cold hard sober materialism uh, and any mm-hmm. kind of religion is inherently reactionary or is inher- inherently repressive and you go yes you can actually say that uh huge amounts of specifically christian christian religion uh is inherently rea- is usually reactionary hugely oppressive but also uh at the same time, it contains incredible, as yet unfulfilled resources for liberatory and indeed revolutionary struggle. Right. So this this is mm-hmm. this is always the thing that kind of annoys me about the way that uh, we talk about religion. And yes, we have spent a lot of time criticizing this film for presenting a story which is uh, ideologically driven, baked into kind of Cold War paranoia and anti-communism. But at the same time, this is also still a story which is about the liberation of enslaved people and the the kind of casting off of the yoke of oppression and the creation of a kind of utopia. Exactly, right? Like this this isn't something that I think <clears throat> it's it's very hard to argue it's textual in the film. But we as critics of it, like it is very easy to explore this through the lens provided by the Catholic workers. Right. You know, it's, th- this is a film about labor uprising for, you know, like hours, hours, conditions and wages. Right. Like the three things that labor traditionally organizes around, you know, what, what do the enslaved peoples of this film do outside of kind of form an impromptu solidarity group, engage in wildcat strikes and then walk off the job in the most meaningful way possible? Yeah, uh, I mean, this idea of like. Proto-socialist, the proto-communist movements have have always had a kind of religious element to them. Uh, you know, I'm thinking here of like Florian Meyer and the Peasants' War with the kind of legend of the sword. Which oh was, yeah, which was uh, mm-hmm. engraved with uh, what was it? No crowns, no churches, right? Uh, this idea of like actually liberation comes through not 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 through this kind of one great man, but through the 
self-actualization of what we would now call class struggle. And this is this is something that I find to be interesting in kind of the uh, approach to this because the kind of the, that 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 kind of like as I like how you put it that arid materialism, right? Like I I think that that limits the tool set available to us, right? Because that implies that within materialism belief isn't a, a massively driving structure. You know, that that there aren't these kind of immaterial qualities that weave into the material that you can actually, like, somehow meaningfully separate the two. Like, base and superstructure is is a useful shorthand in some, in some situations and conditions, but, like, it, it is, like, like that, that is arboreal and we live in a micro-rizal world. Yeah. <laughs> micro-rizal Moses coming this Sunday to ABC. Uh... I mean, uh, what what is the text of this film about, right? We can talk about the textual presentation of the film, but right, the text of the film is about mm-hmm. the essential, essentially, the destruction of a of a uh, oppressive state power, right? Without without the without uh, without slave labor, the presumably, if we're materialists about this, we have to think about what's that. What is that going to mean for the economy? What is that going to mean for the uh, economics of of the uh, of the pharaoh's kingdom? Um, and it's no, it's <laughs> like it's no wonder, it's no wonder, right? That the parting of, Red, of the Red Sea is not just a miracle about movement to freedom; it's a miracle about the escape of 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 a people who were rendered as an asset. Right? Assets are inherently mm-hmm. yep. They're they're kind of capital. They're literally human capital, right? The big problem is that they'll they they will become an unwieldy investment. There's too many of them, um, right? So, like, if you think about this in in materialist or in, in ec- economic terms, right? The 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 liberation theology reading of it becomes much more apparent. And those contradictions are, are, are run throughout so many of these religious stories, right? You can't get away from them, and it's though. But those contradictions are not like problems that have to be sanded out. They're actually the points of friction and contention that are dialectically generative of new insights. Ooh, I love that. I love that point. So, uh, Sorry, moving, I believe, our, I, believe our, I, think, I, I blacked out for 10 minutes. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> no, you were, you were on a tear. We're here for this. Uh, I, I'm, and I'm also interested in this new kind of, uh, the, the, the kind of like, the Nicene Council of Horror Vanguard has decided that the formalism zone is now the bulk of the show and the discourse zone is now the weird vestigial thing that hangs onto the rest of the program. Uh, oh, we we promise normal service will resume at some point as the show continues to get weirder. <laughs> so it's kind of a, it's kind of a closing discursive point. Um, but because I mean like we're we're talking about a golden age Hollywood movie, I think it's only natural that a, a lot of our theoretical discussion was deeply woven into the formalism of this film since that is so informative for like literally the shape of global cinema thereafter um but how do you feel about the kind of cinematic language of freedom as it's used in this film this is this is the problem right what is what does freedom what does freedom represent in this film right it represents the it represents a kind of subordination to a great man leader right it represents, as I as I think I've already said, it represents American exceptionalism, right? The freedom is exemplified in the shining city on the hill. Um, yeah, right. But 
this is this is a freedom that like we we can only look at what that's led to right if it, it, this is the freedom of capitalism right where where <laughs> no i mean I, I i mean that quite quite sincerely right this is the, the oh, no, idea but you're that right, like, yeah. the, the market promises you a kind of freedom right but what is it it's a freedom to be exploited there is no freedom to not be part of the market right yeah a- a- absolutely What about you? What, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I just, I just think that this line of of questioning is really because because this movie is just like from our opening narration from Cecil B. DeMille, all the way through like literally every other line and monologue that they gave Charlton Heston. This is a movie about freedom, and then we, we you you're also right. We do have these questions about text and textual presentation about said freedom, and and kind of how that's being depicted here. We also have these like there, there's something really interesting going on with this film how it depicts the divine, right? Because this this movie goes out of its way to continually mention that this is a nameless god, a god without a name, a, a deliverer that has not yet come, right? God appears in the as the image of the classic burning bush, right? Like a, a bush that burns with fire yet does not combust, right? This kind of pseudo cosmic horror thing an unimaginable sight right like there's something you know like lovecraftian about that right like in a certain respect it, however <laughs> this movie i think is doing this really clever c- cinematic language twist whereby by stressing how faceless and unnamed god is and then like continuing to make moses look like the white or charlton heston specifically look like the vision of god with the flowing white beard the old white guy in the clouds type of imagery and then and then allowing cecil b demille to have this kind of like divine overreaching narration that that the film is like textually it's like oh god dwells in the heart of every man and and, and god will be the source of our liberation and we can draw collectivist collu- uh, uh, conclusions from that but then the textual presentation of the film is like, oh, no, your freedom is going to come when this bearded white guy gives it to you. Oh, what a good take. <clears throat> Woo. Oh. It's been an episode and a half shell. Any any closing remarks or or thoughts about Cecil B. DeMille's, uh, never mind, Vincent Price's The Ten Commandments? I think it's, I think it's really easy to um, discount films like this. Uh but I actually do think they are full of contradictions which are generative, right? Um, it's important to understand kind of cultural history. It's important to understand the ways in which <clears throat> political ideology and religious ideology are usable and instrumentalized. But it's important to uh, also understand that their subsumption into ideological instrumental- instrumentalization does not obscure their potential utopian and revolutionary content, Um you know, like one of one of Engels, uh, Frederick Engels' final books was the the proto it was a communist history of the peasant war in Germany, right? Of the the Reformation, mm-hmm. um, and he saw them as communists or as communists who did not yet realize what communism was. And it's like, uh, you know, figures like Jared Winstanley, uh, the Levelers and the Diggers, and the Catholic Workers, and the uh, Soldier Priests in Latin America. There's, there's, there has always been this tradition of thought that has, uh, 
see kind of religious language being inherently bound up with uh, the language of kind of revolutionary struggle. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's too easy. It's, it's, the solution is too easy to just discount this, right. Or to dismiss it as kind of like a reactionary, reactionary throwback, throwback. It's been too influential. It's, it's shaped too much of our kind of cultural vocabulary. It's, it's one of the foundational statements of the aesthetics of American cinema. Um, Mm-hmm. And you know we got to grapple with it. We got to take it on. I couldn't think of a better place to end the episode. That is that is a perfect closing monologue for our discussion of Vincent Price's The Ten Commandments. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I don't this is kind of a monumentous undertaking. But thank you, everyone, uh, for spending forty years wandering through the desert of discourse with us. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week for what I only assume is a normal horror movie and not something completely out of left field. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.